Hello, my name is Emma Griffiths of Fife Historic Buildings Trust. Welcome to the Inverkeithing Heritage Regeneration Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined again today by Dr Tom Turpey of Stirling University, happily and fortunately for us, also project historian for the Inverkeithing Heritage Regeneration Project. Tom is supporting community members with an interest in history to develop their research skills and uncover new information. Amazingly, even though we've been through the first phases of lockdown in this pandemic, Tom's been able to help the researchers access many sources of evidence which are available digitally. The subject of our podcast today is to look through an Inverkeithing lens at a fantastically broad and interesting topic, the Scottish Wars of Independence. Not a short period of history, in fact a period that spanned two centuries and chock full of succession crises, battles, negotiations. I think for some people it will be primary school dates like 1314. Some people's understanding of the Scottish Wars of Independence will be through a Hollywood interpretation with the focus on rebels and glamorised battles. So Tom, I'm hoping you can help us, help me today understand that stormy period and tell us with a historian's authority rather than any kind of Hollywood lens about Inverkeithing and the Scottish Wars of Independence. So if we perhaps start at the beginning, we've, we've seen on our previous podcasts um, that Inverkeithing was an important port and also a crossroads in medieval Scotland. What did that mean for the town and for its people when there was any conflict and in particular, the first phases of the Wars of Independence. Oh, thank you for having me here today, Emma. Well, I mean, yeah, as we've seen, Inverkeithing was a very important place in medieval Scotland. Um, it was a, had an important port. It was close to the, the Pilgrim Road, taking people to um, St Andrews and to Dunfermline. So that meant that when the wars began in 1296, it was always going to be heavily involved in some way or another. Um, not only did it have those sorts of connections before the wars, but the River Forth was an important supply route for English armies throughout the conflict. Fife, more generally, was some of the best farming country in Scotland, and it was also the headquarters of the Scottish Church, so it was heavily fought over throughout the conflict. Um, and this meant that all the key characters from the wars that people will be familiar with, uh, Robert the Bruce, William Wallace, uh, Edward I, all of these people um, were either in Inverkeithing or connected to the town in some way or other. But one thing that was probably in Inverkeithing's favour throughout the conflict was that it didn't have a castle and it wasn't uh, located that close to any major castles. Now, sieges were a very important part of the wars uh, of places like Perth, Stirling, Edinburgh, Berwick. And these caused devastation to those towns and the surrounding countryside. So in this way, Inverkeithing was probably quite fortunate. Goodness, quite the reverse of what you'd expect. Not having an architectural showpiece in the centre of your town was in fact very advantageous for Inverkeithing. Because, Tom, Inverkeithing was already a seriously established centre portrayed by this period. It had received its royal charter in the previous century, hadn't it? Yes, so Inverkeithing became a, uh, a royal borough probably in about the 1160s, so some time before this. Um, but it had a very close relationship with the 
uh, with the Scottish Crown. Um, they owned at least one sort of property in the town that they sometimes stayed at. Um, they had salt pans for the production and um, salt, salt, a very important medieval commodity for preserving food. So it was a place that had a very strong royal connection in advance of the wars. So it, it had a useful port. It was on medieval pilgrimage routes and it had an established status. So it had been collecting taxes and controlling trade for over a hundred years. It was a very established place then before the, the crisis at, at, uh, at the very end of the 13th century. Yes, and that, in fact, it played quite a significant role in the beginnings of that crisis. So as, as you've alluded to, uh, the wars were in essence uh, the result of a succession crisis. The, the old royal dynasty, uh, the Canmore dynasty, who ruled Scotland for about 200 years, um, they died out in 1290. The last male king, Alexander III, died in 1286. And um, many of our um, listeners are probably familiar with the story of his, of his death at Kinghorn, but they may not know that Inverkeith in itself played quite an important part in that story. Oh, tell us more, tell us more. Well, Alexander in 1286 was very much at the height of his powers. He'd been king since 1249. He was, he was in his 40s. He'd, had, he'd been a very successful king by most um, markers. Um, but from the 1270s, he'd been beset by a series of tr personal tragedies. Um, his wife, his first wife, an English princess, had died, and all three of their children had also died. And this left the succession in the very, very sort of fragile case of a one-year-old child, um, a one-year-old granddaughter, who we now call the, the Maid of Norway. So like any good king, Alexander tried to deal with this crisis by marrying again. He married a young French princess called Yolande. And he had her like um, stowed away in Kinghorn, just along the coast from Inverkeething. Um, so not long after they were married, on a, a sort of stormy evening in March of 1286, uh, Alexander was in Edinburgh Castle doing royal business and he decided to go and visit his new queen. Um, much against the advice of his barons, it's, a number of contemporary chronicles are very clear on that. So he travelled to Dalmeny and took the, the Queen's Ferry across. Now the ferry master tried to stop him Alexander was determined and he arrived in Inverkeething on a what was said to be a dark and stormy night and he was met by a man called Alexander Le Sorcier. Um, now there's a number of different translations of that. It could be the master of the king's sauce kitchen, which is quite an interesting title, um, or he might be the master of the king's salt pans. But either way, he was one of the important town officials of Inverkeething and he arrived on the at the harbour with a number of the officials to meet the king, who he apparently knew quite well. Um, and there's a report um, from a chronicle from written at the time that uh, Alexander was quite stern with the king. He said to him, you know, what are you doing out there in this dodgy weather in the dark? Um, haven't I told you before that travelling at night's a dangerous thing to do? Uh, which does suggest a level of in intimacy between between the two men. And he offered the king hospitality, he said, come and stay at my house, my substantial house in Inverkeithing and go to Kinghorn in the morning when the weather's better. Um, unfortunately, uh, the king was having none of it and demanded two guides and set off 
to King uh, to King Horn, only to be found the next day with a broken neck on the beach. So maybe if Alexander the Sorcier had been a little bit firmer with the king, uh, the whole wars might never have happened. Well, we know from recent storms in 2020 that that piece of coastline is still at risk and has landslips and is subject to flooding and uh, bad weather. Yeah, clearly not a good idea to set off in the dark from Invergade into Kinghorn no. um, in the middle of a storm. What about the role that Inverkeithing played in the Scottish Wars of Independence um, after that? Well, Inverkeithing was pretty consistently involved in the wars for the next, um, what we call the first phase of the wars. So, so 10 years after that event, we find Alexander Le Sorcier again. This time he was in Berwick um, at the head of a sort of deputation of the main men of Inverkeithing, giving his fealty and giving the town's allegiance to the English king, Edward I. Um, now, this is a document that many people will know. It's called the Ragman Rolls, a, a list of Scots who gave their allegiance to Edward I. Now, the wars hadn't begun well for the Scots. Um, Edward I invaded, uh, sacked the port of, of Berwick, crushed the Scottish army at Dunbar and forced the new Scottish king, John Balliol, into exile. So these men were reflecting the, the political reality of 1296 by um, giving their allegiance to the new king. Thereafter, however, um, the sort of the town's fortunes were linked with the allegiances of the local baron, the barons of Inverkeething, who were a family called the Mowbrays, um, of which there are still people with that name in the, in the Inverkeething area today. Now they've been the barons of Inverkeething for more than a hundred years by this point. And they were powerful lords with lands across Scotland. Um, and they were keen Balliol supporters. They'd supported um, his bid to be king. Um, and when the Scots rebelled against Edward I in 1297 under William Wallace and other leaders, uh, the Mowbrays were prominently involved in these rebellions. Geoffrey uh, uh, Mowbray was at the Battle of Falkirk in 1298. And for the next five years, until... 1303, when most of the Scottish lords um, surrendered to Edward I, the Mowbrays were, were keen patriots supporting the Balliol cause. So how did the Mowbrays become the Barons of Inverkeithing? How did they come to have that position and, and the land ownership? They did so through marriage. So, so the Mowbrays, like many of the um, aristocracy of sort of 12th, 13th century Scotland, were originally from northern France. They were Anglo-Norman lords who um, were invited to Scotland by um, a number of Scottish kings in the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, these men had a number of skills that those Scottish kings would have been very keen uh, to take advantage of military skills in terms of their their role as, as knights and military commanders, castle building skills. But they also had very good, um, what you might call, estate organisational skills. They were good at making money. So these, these types of men were invited in by kings like David I and William I in the 12th century. And often they were encouraged to marry into the native nobility. So the Mowbrays married a man, the daughter of a man called Waltheof, who was the Baron of Inverkeeding in the 12th century, and they then inherited the barony from that marriage. Very, very interesting. So they were sort of planted settlers 
Yes, very much so. And this was very common across uh, much of sort of central and southern Scotland in the 12th and 13th century. People like the the Bruces, the Balliols were all, uh, the Wallaces too, were all Anglo-Norman um, families who were invited to Scotland at various stages in the 12th and 13th centuries. Interesting. And Waltheof, the man we mentioned before, was actually, his family were from northern England. They were Northumbrian Saxons who had moved to um, Scotland following the Norman conquest in 1066. So we have a, a real mixture of um, sort of ethnic groups in and around in McKeething in the 12th and 13th centuries. So we have a good sense of there being divided loyalties um, within Inverkeething. Was there ever an English occupation within Inverkeething? Um, oh yes, so shortly after the, the, the Mowbrays and the various other Scottish nobles submitted to Edward, Edward I, he was in, in Inverkeething. He stayed in Inverkeething on, on at least two occasions, probably for a couple of weeks. In the winter of 1303 and the sort of spring of 1304, Edward quite liked Western Fife. Um, he spent a lot of time in Dunfermline as well. He, he saw it as a useful base for his sort of administration. Of, of Scotland. So yeah, we have an occasion where he probably in quite a large retinue, I can imagine, was staying in Inverkeithin, which must have been a very interesting experience for the, the townspeople. Well, not your average kind of pilgrim or, uh, or traveller, but um, how lovely to think that it, the town was capable of um, Airbnb uh, <laughs> medieval kings. Jumping around and forward quite some time, um, another thing that, that springs to people's minds, um, as well as all of the key dates um, in the uh, Scottish Wars of Independence and the, the century-spanning duration of all the battles and the moves and the counter-moves and the negotiations, the Declaration of Arbroath. This year, 2020, is the 700th anniversary of the Declaration of Arbroath. Are there any Inverkeithing connections to that famous document? Well, yes. Um, so one of the the signatories, well, signatories is not quite the right word. His seal was attached to it. Was Roger de Mowbray, the the Baron of Inverkeithing at the time. Um, now, one of the, the common misconceptions about the Declaration of Arbroath is that it presents a, a really united front. You know, it's a letter from Scotland to the to the popes demanding Scottish independence. And this was far from the case. Um, Scotland was not in any way a united place in 1320. And the Mowbrays were very much part of this world. So after Robert the Bruce had seized the throne in 1306, um, they opposed him for the early part of his reign. As, as we've seen, they were Balliol supporters. Um, they were not going to support the a usurper and a murderer, as they would have seen. Robert. So they firmly backed uh, the Balliols and the English kings up until Bannockburn. And it was Bannockburn really that changed things um, for many Scottish lords. Um, after Bannockburn, they saw the way that the wind was blowing and came into Robert the Bruce's peace. Um, but quite, like quite a few of these former sort of Balliol adherents, I don't think they were ever really reconciled to the Bruce's as king. And around the same time as the Declaration of Arbroath, a conspiracy was conceived, which we now call the, the Saul's Conspiracy, after one of its leaders, uh, to replace Robert as king and to bring back a man called Edward Balliol, who was a son 
of John Bailey or the King from the early parts of the wars. And Roger de Mowbray was part of this conspiracy. Um, now, it's not quite clear what happened. He died shortly before the um, conspiracy was sort of uh, tried in Parliament. There is one local legend that he was injured while being arrested by Bruce's men and died from his wounds, but we can't be certain of that. But what is clear is what happened next, which was that even though Roger was dead, his body was taken to the Scottish Parliament and it was tried for treason and oh. he was found guilty and his head was cut off. Wow. Um, now that must have been an interesting experience. He'd been dead for some time. How absolutely ghastly in every possible respect. That's not the only example of, um, of bodies being present in order to be tried, but frankly... Yeah, it's a it's a legal thing, really. In order to um, uh, strip him of his his family of their lands, it was necessary to have a trial. So that was why they did it. But I think Bruce uh, was making a very clear point here. Well, but it, it's a it's an absolutely fascinating period because the, this absolute um, concept of bloodline over merit um, is is really interesting. So the, the justice and the example making. Um, so... Well, that was the case to some degree. But what the wars also did was gave, was provide an opportunity for able and active people to to um, advance themselves. And this is what happened with the lands of Inverkeething. So after his involvement in a conspiracy, uh, Roger and his family were were, were forfeited. So a small part of their lands went to his daughter and her husband. But the barony itself was given eventually to a man called Nicholas Scrimger. And he was from his family were from Dundee and they really made their names in the wars. They were a sort of minor family who had been big supporters of William Wallace. He'd been Wallace's standard bearer at the major battles of the 1290s. Um, and he was a major supporter of Bruce. So Bruce rewarded him for this with um, the barony of Inverkeething um, in 1324. And that family, the Scrimger family, then held that those lands for the next 300 years. Goodness, that was quite the prize for the Scrimgers. Not so great, I imagine, for the peasants. No, I mean, you wonder really for your average person living in the sort of hinterland of Inverkeething, uh, most, almost all of which would have been farm labourers, essentially. A very few of them, if any of them, would have had any, uh, owned their own land. How much things had changed for them over the wars, apart from the occasional danger of having your lands burned and possibly being killed? For them, really, what we've probably seen is just an exchange of landlord more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I imagine, I mean, feeding armies... Um, it's kind of become a cliche, hasn't it? Oh, enough to feed an army. But in fact, you know, it's probably no surprise that Inverkeething was so involved because it's at the edge of that fantastically strong farmland and there would have been resource. There would have been granaries full of grain and I dare say they were emptied and probably not always <laughs> fair exchange for, um, for the amounts that were taken. Mm, and not only was Edward the first spent a considerable time in the town. Robert the Bruce also spent more than one um, a, a visit to the town as well with presumably quite a large retinue. He would never have travelled anywhere without quite a number of soldiers. He was always 
under threat. So those must have been quite trying periods for the town and their hinterland in, in needing to provide the sort of levels of food for having you know, 300, 500 men suddenly yes. imposed yes. upon okay. you. Okay, by way of concluding, long-term impacts of the wars on the town? The main impact would have been a change in trading partners. So before the wars, and even for a very brief period in between the First and Second Wars, Immerkeething seems to have been a sort of trading hub for English merchants from the east coast of England, trading with sort of central Scotland. Uh, but the wars very much put an end to that for, for two centuries. So after that, Immerkeething's trading partners would have been much further afield, uh, the Low Countries and the Baltic. So it really shaped um, the types of products that would have been exported from Immerkeething, and the types of connections that the merchants in the town had with um, mainland Europe. Tom, that's just so interesting. Can you suggest where listeners might go to find out more about this amazing period? Yes, the wars are quite a, a difficult subject to, to find information on that's that's reliable. These are it's a subject, of course, it's very even though it was 700 years ago, it's still quite current politically. So you have to be quite careful with what you're looking for. But for more information on the Declaration of Our Broth, uh, Scotland's National Archives um, has a lovely little exhibition about it. They had planned to have a major exhibition at the National Museum this year, but that's been postponed to 2021. Um, so I would recommend going on the National Archives website. It's got a really nice little display about it. And the Scottish History Society, which is quite a reliable organisation, has a quite a good sort of description of the chronology of the wars and the types of things that happened and puts it all in quite a good context. So those would probably be the best places to go digitally. And there's lots of good books by authors like Geoffrey Barrow, uh, Michael Penman, uh, Michael Brown. They are probably the best academic authors to go to for this subject. Thank you. I'll include those websites and author names in the podcast episode description. Thank you very much for your contribution this morning, Tom. It's been great. Great. Thanks very much, Emma. Thanks for listening to the Inverkeething Heritage Regeneration podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the project in Inverkeething or some of the other things we do at Fife Historic Buildings Trust, check out our website at www.fifehistoricbuildings.org.uk. You can use the website to get in touch. If you have any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to cover, if you have questions for our guests, or have views on these podcasts, we'd love to hear from you. Fife Historic Buildings Trust delivers the Inverkeeping Heritage Regeneration Project in partnership with Fife Council. Thanks for listening today, and thanks too to the project funders Historic Environment Scotland and the National Lottery Heritage Fund.